0: I don't know how you hear a passage of Scripture like that and not go to the Lord in prayer. So let's, let's do that one more time as we approach the Scriptures today. Lord, we have heard your inspired, inerrant, infallible word and the declaration that you have made about your Son, Jesus the Christ. We think and we tremble. That one day, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you, Jesus, are the Lord, the Christ, the King of all kings. Lord, we we thank you for the privilege that we have now to bow our, our heads and our hearts. As we worship you this morning, and Lord, we pray that you would build joy among your people as we submit to Christ's Lordship. We've, we've heard this confession. May we make our own confession that you indeed, Jesus, are worthy of all that we have to give. You are God and King. We thank you for your saving grace in our lives. And now we pray by the power of your matchless spirit, you would guard us as we, as we prepare to dive into your word here. Guard us from error, Lord. And guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're picking up where we left off last week in verse 18. Luke 9, 18. If you're using your church Bibles, that can be found on page 814. Again, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. As you're turning there... I'm curious, I wonder, what would you say is the deepest, most significant question that someone has ever asked you? I mean, there's lots of important questions that we answer in life. Questions, for example, like, what will you do for a living? It's kind of a big deal. Questions like, where are you going to live? Also, has pretty big implications for how your life turns out. How about this one? Who will you love? I uh, keep on smiling as I look back at Emily Klusendorf, now Morosco and and Matthew just tying the knot a a few weeks back. That's a big question, right? Will you marry me? There's also this ever-present question that just never seems to go away. It's the question, what are we going to eat, right? (laughs) For some, there's an additional question, do I post it on social media? The answer is no, just stop it, would you? Um, Yeah. Got my first amen from Dan up here. Lots of questions in life. Well, the gospel of Luke has been begging a higher question, an eternally significant question, over and over again from the very beginning up to this point in chapter 9. With Jesus of Nazareth in view, the question has been this. Who is this man? Who is this? is this man? Today, Jesus himself is going to pose the question, and here's how he puts it. He says it this way, who do you say that I am? That, friends, without question or hesitation, is the most important question you will ever answer. What do you do with Jesus? Who do you believe he is, and and what are you proposing to do about that? You see, heaven and hell hang in the balance of this eternally significant question. And today, in Luke 9, we're going to see a straightforward, unambiguous answer to that very question. Jesus is literally going to bottom line for us who he is and what we should do about it. So let's read together Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. This is, I'll remind you, the word of the Lord. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Okay. It's quite a text. This is, as I often say, when we get to the heart of the gospel, this is like home base for us as Christians. If you've been following the Lord for any amount of time, you have most assuredly heard this passage before. And my plea for you this morning is to resist the urge. We often need to resist this urge just to kind of go on autopilot because these words from Christ are so familiar to us. Note here that it's actually Jesus who initiates the question about his identity. Look with me, if you would, in verse 18. After a time of intimate prayer with his heavenly Father. Now, that's fascinating. Jesus is often praying, and he's often praying before the, the most climactic moments in his earthly ministry, this question being one of those. He's praying to the Lord. I wish we had a little more information to know what he was specifically asking his Father. Maybe it was, Father, is it time? Is it time for them to know? Whatever he's praying, he's communing with his heavenly Father. And Jesus asks his disciples what the word on the streets is. Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, I find it just utterly fascinating that their threefold answer is essentially identical to the response we saw given to Herod just a few verses earlier. Look back with me, if you would, in verses 7 and 8. Herod was perplexed. He was confounded, Herod Antipas, at this Jesus and all that he and his apostles were doing. And, and Herod's asking the question, like everyone, who is this man? The disciples' answers about what the crowd thinks are the same as that given to Herod. There, there are three prevailing theories. Here they are. Number one, John the Baptist. Option two, Elijah. Or three, one of the prophets of old who has risen john the baptist seems to be the prevailing notion he's listed first and given pride and place in both accounts although we've already seen that herod antipas has beheaded him and by the way john john himself this baptizer made it exceedingly clear that there was a chasm of a difference between jesus and himself he's not worthy to untie the, the straps of his sandals Chapter three, verse 16. Now Elijah is another interesting choice. The main reason for this view was undoubtedly the Old Testament prophesy, uh, prophecy, excuse me, from Malachi, chapter four, verse five, where God had told His people in advance, "Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes." So many devout Jews with this prophecy in mind would have been looking for the coming of Elijah. According to Jesus, though, this is fascinating. If you kind of look at option A and B together, John the Baptist is actually this elijah figure who was to come two verses to support that and we're just gonna keep marching through the text here here's here's one this is out of the mouth of jesus and jesus is connecting the dots not between himself and elijah but between john the baptizer and elijah first matthew 11 13 to 15 and i think we've got these yep, up on the screen for you if you want to jot these down and chase them later feel free matthew 11 beginning in verse 13 for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, speaking about John the Baptist. And if you're willing, Jesus continues to accept it. He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus repeats it again in Matthew 17. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So in Jesus' mind, the question is quite clear He's not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. John the Baptist is the new iteration of Elijah here in this day and this time. And, and finally, there are still others, not exactly sure what to make of this Jesus. They, they had other guesses. Perhaps one of the prophets of old has risen. I don't know, just as an aside, it's interesting to me that people's logical explanation, the word on the street, had to do with resurrection Abundantly. right? John the Baptist has raised, been raised from the dead, or, or one of the prophets of old has been raised from the dead. It was that kind of power that embodied Jesus' ministry that got them thinking. Something really special and unique was at play here. Now, Matthew's account in Matthew's gospel includes Jeremiah in the list of the prophets that it might be. We also read in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses predicted a prophet that would come after him, a prophet like him, one day. Uh, So perhaps people were thinking, this this is the prophet like Moses to come. It's interesting, I find, that all of these views, all of these popular views circulating about Jesus were positive, weren't they? That's not to say that nobody didn't like him. We know the religious leaders had quite a beef against him and and others as well. They'd eventually kill him, right? But, But at this time, Jesus is performing miracles. Jesus is speaking with unparalleled power and authority, and the word on the street was overwhelmingly positive. They could not deny the power of this man. He's clearly sent from God. And yet, although most opinions of Jesus back then were largely positive, P.S., today they are too. These views were all completely and woefully insufficient, were they not? Jesus is not merely John the Baptizer. Jesus isn't merely Elijah or any other of the prophets. Although people undoubtedly thought they were giving Jesus a high distinction, they fell short of his true an eternally significant identity. And today we get much the same phenomenon. What do you do with Jesus? Well, he, I mean, he was a great prophet. He was a spiritual teacher and leader. He was a selfless sage. He was a, he was a community organizer. We get all kinds of things, but, but whatever he was, he worked for the good of humanity in some way. These views are insufficient if you take Jesus' own words for it insufficient to capture who he is and who he was claiming to be here look at verse 20 jesus pivots from who do they say these crowds out there who does the populace say that i am and jesus zeroes in now on his own disciples it's time for jesus to pose the question directly to them who do you say that i am Now, we can miss this in English, but but in the Greek, the language of the New Testament, that word you is in the plural. He's, He's asking the question to all of his disciples there, who do you say I am? And the you is emphatic. Jesus is essentially saying, sure, I get it. Some people say one thing, some people say something else, but you, I want to know what you say about my identity. Peter Answers for the entire group, doesn't he, here in verse 20. One pastor I was listening to this week said it this way. He said, Peter took his foot out of his mouth long enough to finally give one right answer. Peter says in verse 20, you are the Christ of God. Now, Matthew's gospel gives us a very important detail here. Matthew tells us that Peter said this, that Peter came to this conclusion about Jesus and his identity because God the Father had revealed it to him. This wasn't Peter's bright idea. This was God-given knowledge. Matthew 16, 15 to 17, I'll just read you the reference. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is still, friends, the way that people come to see Jesus for who he truly is. Peter's not running with a one-off here. The only way that a man or that a woman or that a child comes to see Jesus for who he truly is is that God the Father, by the power of His Spirit, opens their eyes to behold this truth in all its glory and wonder. Take it from Jesus' own mouth. John 6, and 45. Again, we got that reference there if you want to look this up later. John 6, 44 and 45. From Jesus, this is pretty black and white, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, that that Greek word, I hate to geek out on you, but this is powerful. That Greek word that Jesus uses in John 6 for draws. You only come to, to Jesus if the Father draws you. That word draws can also be translated literally to drag Or to pull in as if by force. So let me bottom line it for you. If you belong to Jesus, it's because God dragged you there. It's because He pulled you into Himself into His loving and gracious arms. It's kind of like when our one-year-old wants to toddle her way into the pool. I don't know what's going on with that little beautiful mind that she's got. She's like drawn to death. She's got this magnetic draw to like just walk into the deep end of the pool. But we happen to love that little girl. And we are very diligent to snatch her from death over and over again all summer long at the poolside. As a result of the impulse of our love. That's the picture, if you would. Maybe an insufficient picture, but, but an accurate physical representation dragging us away from our sin and death as a result of our love. That's what God the Father has done to all those who have seen Jesus as Savior and submitted to Him. Do you hear the words of your master, church? Have you come to see Jesus as the Christ of God? If so, a little slice of humble pie for all of us. If so, it's not because you're smart. If so, it's not because you're sincere or you're just more godly than the person next to you. It's certainly not because there was a preacher or a person explaining it to you who just managed to package the gospel perfectly for you. No, If if you see Jesus as everything, as your only hope in life and death of eternal life, then, then salvation has been to you what it is to Peter, what it is to all. It's God's miracle birthed in your chest because He miraculously opened your eyes to behold His beauty and goodness. If you're saved, it's because He breathed upon your dead, lifeless soul. And open your eyes. This is precisely, Friendship Community Church, what we are praying for those around us. We're praying for our loved ones. We're praying for our neighbors and our friends and, and family members. You're not here, you're not nestled for all eternity in the safe, loving, gracious arms of the Heavenly Father. Because you were smart enough to make a right decision. He dragged you in His love into His safety and salvation. So, let's before we, before we just move on entirely, let's not assume this morning that everyone here in this room knows what that means. Knows what Peter is saying in this remarkable confession of faith. This is big. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ of God? Well, we've said it before, it probably bears repeating. It's important to remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Often those two words go together. It's not like Jesus was born into the Christ family. Christ is not a name at all. Christ is a title. And a pretty big one at that. It's helpful to know I think that the word Christ and Messiah and anointed one are all the same thing. Christ equal sign Messiah. Same word. Christ Christos is simply a Greek rendering of the verb or excuse me of the noun Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Greek is the he, is the uh, excuse me Christos or Christ is the Greek word. I made that super confusing. Christ, Greek, Messiah, Hebrew, same word, and they both mean anointed one. Was that better? Anointed one, chosen, anointed of God for a specific glorious purpose. And In this case, Jesus, the Messiah, is the long-awaited Savior, the one we've been longing and waiting for since the wheels came off the bus of humanity in Genesis chapter 3 the one promised to Adam and Eve in the first sharing of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. This is he. Now, it's not a coincidence that Jesus immediately follows this glorious profession of Peter. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Jesus immediately does something very curious, I think, with that information. We would expect him to say, attaboy, Peter, and when you read the Gospels together, and in Matthew's account, Jesus clearly is affirming this is true. But what do we see next? Look at verse 21. This is baffling to some of us. Jesus effectively says, shh, it's not time for this amazing news to hit the world in full force just yet. Well. Why? Why? Well, because the crowning act of Jesus as Christ, of Jesus as the Messiah, is still yet to come. Please don't miss this. Jesus gives his rationale very plainly here. Without skipping a beat, Jesus moves from what some theologians call the messianic secret, that, hey, keep this quiet for now, into his identity with Christ, as Christ, with his work on the cross. Do you see this? Christ is and cross are inseparably linked. Friends, it's because the way that the world would come to know Jesus as the Christ of God would be through His sacrificial death on the cross and His glorious resurrection three days later. You see, people's concept of the Messiah had gotten warped, it had gotten lopsided over the years. Everyone was looking for this Messiah to come back as a conqueror. And he was. Just not the political, military kind of conqueror that they were expecting in this day, in this time. Jesus' primary purpose wasn't to come back and squash Rome yet. So, In order that there wouldn't be widespread misunderstanding about what it meant for him to be the Messiah, he told them to wait. And then Jesus proceeds to recalibrate their expectations for what it means for him to be the Christ of God, the the Messiah they've been waiting for. Yes, he would conquer. He'd conquer death itself. But first, he would endure persecution suffering and death well this is the first time at least here in luke's gospel that we see jesus predicting with great specificity i might add his suffering and rejection at the hands of the jewish leaders his violent death and his resurrection even down this is mind-boggling he predicts his resurrection even down to the precise timing he calls the shot in advance. I remember when I was, you, know, in, in, on the schoolyard playing basketball, and we'd like be playing pig or horse or something, and we, if you were going to make a bank shot, you had to call it first, so that you knew you meant to do that, and it wasn't just sort of like a fluke. Jesus called it. I'm going to die, and I'm even going to give you the timestamp. I'm going to die, I'm going to be in the grave three days, and then I'm going to rise from the grave. Now, there's a lot more that could be said here, but I want to highlight two very specific things. The first, the certainty of Jesus' prophetic announcement. And secondly, this drill down deeper on the specificity of his claims. Let's start with the certainty. Notice here this verbiage. Look at verse 22, if you would. Jesus said, It's not that these things might happen. He said, it's that they what? They must happen. Don't skip over that little word. Little word, big meaning. The Son of Man must do this. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And He must rise on the third day. These things, after all, are foretold by Old Testament prophecy. These things are determined by the will of God from eternity past. I'm I'm thinking of Jesus' um, exchange with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember that moment? We'll get to it in like three years at the end of Luke. Just kidding. Luke 24, Jesus has risen from the grave, and he meets two disciples, and they can't This is fascinating. They can't really recognize who he is. Their eyes have not been opened. You're noticing a theme. To see Christ. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25. This is easy to remember. Luke 24, 25, 26. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see, friends, these things must happen. God had sealed this. The cross wasn't his sort of like best audible call to a bad situation that Satan had messed up. No, from eternity past, he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. This has always been... God's plan. These things must happen. Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Christ of God. And Jesus, it's almost as if Jesus says to Peter, yes, but not the Christ in your minds. There will be more terrible events rolling out of this truth than you can possibly imagine, and more glory than you can possibly conceive. Note also, before we keep tracking, the specificity of Jesus' prediction. As we've said, it's one thing to predict something like your death. That seems pretty, you know, pretty imminent for all of us. Hovering around like a 100% ratio of the death rate, if you've checked that stat recently. But Jesus goes on record here and also predicts his resurrection from the grave. It's not merely that Jesus knows this is going to happen. He knows the day it's going to happen. Think just for a moment, if you would, about the sheer amount of confidence you've got to have in order to say something like this. To say something like this and then go and pull it off. That's utterly astounding. You see this? Jesus is stating it as a fact. I will suffer, I will die, and then after three days, I will rise again. I hope you see here, friends, that Jesus' resurrection on the third day is just as certain to him as his death will be. Now, it took a while for this to get through the thick heads of the disciples, right? But is Jesus not clear? He's being very clear here. As, we've, as it's been said before, the guy who can predict his death and then his resurrection and go on to pull it off, now that's a man you should follow. That's a man that you should tremble before. This is a man you should worship. Look at verse 23, if you would. Here we see the response. Jesus spelling out the right response To him being the Christ of God, for for him to be the Messiah. He said to all, note that word, no asterisks, no exceptions, to all, if anyone would come after me, you just want to just put a little, press the pause button. Is that you? Would you come after Jesus? Do you desire to follow Christ? Well, then whatever he says next applies to you, right? If anyone would come after me, he said to all, what do you got to do? He spells it out. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, how often? Daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, this is Christianity 101. You want to follow Jesus? Three things. Deny, die, and follow. That's what he says. Right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him say no to his or her own personal inclinations, to his or her own desires for life. Let him say no to their former personality and identity and instead identify with him Let him deny himself let, let him jesus says secondly take up his cross now this becomes real poetic in the 21st century we sing songs about taking up your cross and we wear crosses around our our neck and we you know ink them on our skin we do all kinds of we see crosses as we walk into people's house. I want you to think for just a moment how utterly shocking that would have been in the first century. What was the cross? Well, the cross was an instrument of torture and death. Parents, what if your kid (laughs) tried to go out of the house wearing an electric chair necklace, right? Or like a lethal injection shirt. you would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's have a talk. This is graphic. If anyone, Jesus said, would come after me, let him take up his cross. What do you do when you're taking up your cross? Well, well, very practically, that was a a technical term for taking up. You know, there was two pieces of a cross, the, the vertical piece, and then there was the horizontal cross beam. Taking up your cross would have entailed you... Having to carry the horizontal cross piece and be paraded publicly through town as the Romans very publicly stripped you and watched you die. By the way, no one there's there's not one account of a crucifixion that anybody ever survived. Taking up your cross is a walk of intentional, it's an intentional pathway to death. So work through the the familiarity of the language. What's Jesus saying? If you want to come after me, you say no to you and you die. You die. Now, there have been many sweet and precious saints throughout the course of redemptive history that have physically died, that God has called and crowned with the gift of martyrdom. I think a great disservice that's done to the church today is when we pat our little boys and girls on the head and assure them that never happens anymore. That's a lie. It happens every day. Praise God that we are born into a context where we can worship Him freely. And God calls everyone, everyone who would follow Jesus to die Some temporally here as martyrs for, his, for the sake of his name and his gospel. And the rest of us, it might mean martyrdom for you or for me. Who knows what's around the corner? But it doesn't have to mean that, right? I mean, because you've got that word daily in there. Every day, Jesus says, there's a dying that takes place as a result of your relationship to him. A laying down of yourself and a following him. And that's the last step, right? You deny yourself. You die to your own preferences and identity. And you follow him. You remember his beautiful words, Christ's beautiful call in John? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's what his sheep do. They follow him. This is what Jesus says following Him is all about. Deny, die, and follow. Now, we've got the response. Time for some application. If you're struggling as you follow Jesus to work through the highs and lows of life, I just want to issue a reminder to you, something perhaps you already know but may need a fresh grasp on. Your struggle, Christian your struggle of sin and self is going to follow you all your days. That's why Jesus said, you got to die every morning. So set, just let's let's level. So please set your expectations accordingly. Here's two verses that, that I often have to pray through because I'm prone, perhaps like some of you, to spiritual sulking when things don't go my way. Here's two verses that have meant a lot to me, and and I hope will perhaps guide you in your daily dying to self. Here's one, Galatians 2.20. I've got them up here. You can just write down the references, if this helps. Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm dead. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. And I like this one, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. You listening, church? Don't be surprised by the trial and the test, fiery as it may be, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Jesus said, For whoever would save his life... Would lose it, But whoever dies, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to, to gain the whole world and forfeit or lose his soul? Here we see here as we're drawing near the end of this passage, the enigma of the kingdom and the economics of the kingdom. Let me explain. Look at verse 24. The enigma of the kingdom. What's an enigma? Well, it's a mystery. Something that's an enigma is almost like a paradox. This is kind of counterintuitive, right? Can we just admit that? Jesus said, if you want to save your life, there's only one way to do it. Lose it. Seems kind of counterintuitive. It certainly seems to buck against this reflex that we all have, this self-preservation reflex. If you want to save your life, says Jesus said, you got to do precisely the opposite. For some who have heard the claims of Jesus, this very thing is their stumbling block. They just can't justify giving up all they have, all they want, or the life they've chosen to live. And the sad irony is, there will be a day when they lose it anyway. Sooner or later, you will lose your life as you know it now. The question is, are you going to lose your life for a higher love? For the Christ who made you and sustained you and bought you with his blood? To gain an infinitely better one? Or will you lose it and enter destruction of eternal fire? There's a, an enigma, a paradox to what Jesus is saying. And then he says in verse 25 count the cost. You see it here, the the economics of the kingdom? Jesus appeals to profit. He says, what's it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Again, this this is the sad reality, but, but we see people doing this every day, don't we? Every day we see people settling for far less than the whole world, at the forfeit of their own souls. Listen to this pastoral appeal from Philip Bricken as he's writing for the Reformed Expository Commentary. Again, I just can't speak highly enough to that resource. Very faithful, if you're seeking to understand the Bible better. Philip Bricken writes these words, If not even the entire world can offset the cost of losing your soul, how much less the things that are in the world Consider everything the world has to offer. It's proud ambitions, it's monumental achievements, it's exciting entertainments, it's luxurious pleasures. Then consider the smaller treasures that you strive for every day, the purchases you're planning to make, the pleasures you feel that you can't live without, the position you're trying to gain. Is it really worth it? To let these things stand in the way of your obedience to Christ, are they worth the price of your soul? Here Jesus himself is beckoning us to count the cost. He's saying, in essence, you can't afford not to follow me. It's true. The cost of discipleship is steep. He just said, if you're going to follow Him, you've got to die. You've got to give up everything to follow Him. But friends, the cost of non-discipleship is even higher. What it's going to cost you to not give up your life for Jesus is your very soul. God does not, did not save you, believer and follower in Jesus, for you to spend your life on yourself. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Many of us have heard the example of of Jim Elliott, that missionary, that courageous missionary and eventually martyr who went to the Acca Indians in 1956 and was killed in Ecuador for, for bringing the gospel to those who'd never heard it before. Jim Elliott, who spoke before he died, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Elliot understood Jesus' words, didn't he? We're almost done. Twenty-six, Verse 26, Jesus now, as he's instructing his disciples, disciples excuse me, on what it means to follow him, issues a strong future motivation. And, and as he does so, he employs the language of shame. Check it out. Verse 26, There's two things that Jesus warns his followers against being ashamed of. First thing, himself. Don't be ashamed of me, Jesus says. And next, and more specifically, don't be ashamed of his words. Just stop for a hot minute here. There are people who would presume to do this, you know there are people who, who would talk a big game about being aligned with Jesus yet simultaneously rejecting his words, rejecting his truth. Yeah, I, I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian, but fill in the blank. I believe all that stuff he said. Come on now. it's hard. No no, no, no. You can't be ashamed of Jesus if you're going to follow him. Neither can you be ashamed of his words. Remember Luke 6, 46. We've we've been here recently. Jesus saying incredulously, why do you call me Lord, Lord? The word Lord means master. Why do you call me master and Lord and not do what I say? It's incompatible to the Savior, that you would presume to call him master and then reject his own words. Doesn't work. Note here in verse 26 the when of this warning about being ashamed of him and his words. When's when's he talking about? He says, the second coming, right? And that's what he's talking about. When the Son of Man comes again, He's he's here the first time. He's already talking about His second trip back. The Bible word for this is the parousia, the the appearing of the Son of Man the the, the next time in climactic power. The Son of Man, by the way. We see Jesus using this title here for Himself. This is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He's hearkening back to Daniel 7, to the Son of Man given a kingdom by the ancient of days. And Jesus is applying that term to himself. And please don't miss this. Jesus now, where you've seen a, a pretty broad prediction, Jesus has been predicting or foretelling not just his death, not just his resurrection. Here, a couple of verses later, Jesus is also very clearly speaking of his second coming again. Just like scripture tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1. saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Those are some strong words. you ashamed of them? This is the gospel. Jesus says, if you're going to understand what it means that I'm the Christ of God, you understand that He gets everything, that we owe our life to Him, we deny ourselves, we die daily, we follow Him, and we await His glorious return. There's two categories of people, that's it, on that final capital D day. Those He's ashamed of, and then His own, who've been awaiting His appearing, who've been delighting in His appearing. How could we be ashamed of His words? One more example of a godly saint and martyr. Some of you have heard the name Polycarp before. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, and uh, as far as we know, the, the last known disciple of a living apostle. He was taught by the apostle John. The authorities brought him in at 86 years of age as an old man who'd served the Lord faithfully for decades and demanded that he renounce his faith in Jesus. You know his answer? He replied without a flinch, four score and six years, 86 years, I have served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? And they killed him, 86 years old. <laughs> Church history goes, they... they <laughs> They'd try to kill him in the arena, and that didn't work, so they eventually just had to run him through with a sword. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. A word of application here at the end. Followers of Jesus need, in view of Jesus' words here, of what it means to follow him, we must look ahead often. Christian, if you're not looking ahead to Jesus' second coming, I think one of two things are going to happen. Either at best, you're going to lose perspective for this life and how to live it, or at worst, we'll be given to despair. So let me just ask you the question. Are you given to despair? Some of us are. It's a hard life. Some of you are going through tough stuff. Are you given to despair? Perhaps it may be possible then that you're not looking ahead enough to the reward that Christ said comes when He returns. That's when we get the reward. Philippians 3.20, last verse I'll leave you with. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables even him to subject all things to himself. Are you struggling? Are you prone to despair? I'm not trying to say you shouldn't shouldn't be upset as tragedies are cascading upon you. What I am saying is, where's your heart? Where are your eyes fixed? Where's your perspective? I love it. I don't get to see her often, but I love it when Diane Friedrich comes in. I caught her before the service started. We pray for her so often, racked with physical pain. Yet I don't know that I know a better example of a prayer warrior in my life. Someone who is constantly interceding for this family of faith before the Lord, for her, for her family, for, for, for Jesus' return. Show me someone who's looking up to Christ and His second coming, and I'll show you a man, a woman, a child with hope despite all the hurt that they carry. Well, verse 27, you may have noticed the astute among us that we haven't covered. That's because when Jesus says, there's going to be some here who don't see death until, uh, until they see my glory, um, we get the answer to verse 27 if you just keep reading into the very next verses, which is next week's sermon. So I'll, I'll stop here, Whew. and we'll pray. Lord, thank you so much for your grace in our lives. Lord, thank you for your reminder here in Scripture of what it means to follow Jesus. God, shake us out of the familiarity. Shake us out of our own... Coasting those of us who have been following you for a long time, Lord, we, we, we desire to follow you with all that we've got heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, would you, would you help us afresh believe and surrender to your Lordship? You are the Messiah, Jesus. You're the Christ. You have, as you have said, you have died for the sins of humanity. You have risen after three days from the grave. And now, This next promise, we know, is as sure as the first two. You're coming back. Lord, all our hope is wrapped up in your eternal kingdom. Our inheritance is there, where you are. Lord, give us hope. Give us peace. Help us to surrender afresh to you with joy. Not to to dig in our heels. Lord, Help us to lose our lives all over again today because you're worth it. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. Amen.